0: So as Chuck has implied today, it is depressing to read the newspaper, isn't it? It's depressing to look at a website that's about news. Have you ever noticed that there's no news about Hollywood husband stays with his wife for 30 years? You know, Fluffy Bunny has 10 babies. Why is it always downers? Even though selling news is about the dramatic it does remind us that in the depths of human heart is a tremendous capacity to do evil. And that's really what the news serves to remind us about all the time. And the Bible is brutally honest about this, too. The Bible is full of stories of real people who did good things, but also had hidden sins that were pretty bad. And all of us have these things in our heart um, that... um, are just not what we know we should be. So, go back to the first couple. Put them in a perfect environment. God's presence right there with them. You think everything would be super, but no. One simple command, they disobeyed that. And that started the problem. It introduced sin into the human experience, and the Daily News chronicles the worst of these outcomes. Most of us should be glad that the secret thoughts of our hearts and actions are not printed in the daily newspaper. The Bible, though, tells us the amazing news that right from the beginning of that problem, God planned a solution. He planned to rescue us from our sin. The day that those first humans disobeyed God, he said, through the descendant of Eve, I am going to rescue you. Now that's pretty vague one of the human beings born as a child of Eve, right? Uh, But what happens is, over time, as the Old Testament is written, details begin to be filled in in this story. And the Old Testament gives us pictures of the coming Savior who becomes known in time as the Messiah in Hebrew, or the Christ in Greek. And that simply means someone that God has anointed to be his instrument to redeem humanity. And so as the books were written over hundreds of years, over 300 detailed prophecies were written about this person, the Christ. And the story sort of comes into focus gradually. It's like a detective television show, and you know how they've got this picture that's really grainy, and then they try to amplify it. And you should bring that up, actually. We're about on the third slide now. <laughs> that's that's the title, um, and we're hoping this video will work. And there it goes, not at all. Okay, well, we just had it work a few minutes ago. This is what kept me up late at night trying to get this thing to work. Oh well, it wasn't worth the trouble. So now you have to use your imagination. In your imagination, you watch a television show where they're looking at the surveillance camera and there's this little grainy image, and you know how, oh, we'll just do this with the computer and it will bring in more details, and then eventually, see, not much detail there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And eventually, you get a really clear image. You say, ah, that's the perpetrator. Well, that's kind of what happens in the Old Testament. First, it starts out as a son of Eve. And then it becomes a descendant of Abraham that will bless all the nations. And then it becomes a descendant of King David who will rule over the nations. And he'll be born in Bethlehem, a little bitty town, you know. And then he'll live in an obscure village in a place that no one wanted to be around. And he'll be betrayed by his closest friend. And he'll die a horrifying death on the cross. He'll rise from the dead. I mean. Details like this are pretty hard to say. Any individual in history could fulfill all 300. It's pretty astronomical, the odds against that. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the one that fulfilled all of these prophecies about the Messiah. He says in John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that witness of me. Now, many of these detailed predictions are in the Psalms. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at five of these Psalms. And my prayer is this will enlarge your vision of who Jesus is. You will appreciate his majesty, his grandness. The difficulty with, to be honest, studying this passage is the more you study it, the more you realize how amazing Jesus is. And it's just endlessly deep, the kinds of things we can learn about Christ, just from this one short psalm. So today we're going to look at Psalm 110. This psalm was quoted more than any psalm in the New Testament. It was one of the favorite prophetic psalms. And even where it's not quoted, you catch phrases that are picked up in terms, like, Jesus is Lord. That comes from this psalm. And that's the number one title for Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, These passages you just read about him as our high priest, that comes from this psalm. A lot of other ideas that we'll see. This psalm was written by David, who was the greatest king of ancient Israel. And here, he's writing prophetically about the Redeemer that God planned to send into the world. This actually was one of the psalms that was sung or chanted regularly in synagogue services to express the hope of Jewish people that the Messiah would come to redeem them. And Jesus said, I fulfill this and hundreds of other prophecies. This is a sweeping picture of the majesty of the Messiah. It focuses on two great characteristics of this promised deliverer. First, he would be the perfect king who would defeat all of God's enemies and reign in righteousness over the entire world. And secondly, he would be an eternal priest who alone can remove evil from the world now in the old testament normally the role of priest and king were separate you know you wouldn't have one person that would do both and when they tried to they'd get into a lot of trouble but here the messiah brings together these two roles perfectly and he takes it beyond what any human priest or king could ever do so let's read psalm 110 Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the youth will be yours. This is warrior imagery, right? This is a great and powerful king who defeats all of his enemies. But you have to understand, this is poetry. It's symbolic. It's intended to create graphic imagery that fills your mind with a sense of the power of this figure. And what we see here through most of the psalm is that he's the perfect king. Now, you know what? It's presidential election time. I think there's only about two weeks out of every four years that it's not presidential <laughs> election time. But, you know, I've been through more of these election cycles than I would care to admit to, but um, every time there's somebody that says, the problem with the nation is we don't have leadership. Have you ever heard that one? And of course, the person says, and I'm the one that offers that leadership. But, I've also seen enough of these election cycles to tell you that no matter who gets elected, marriages are still going to collapse. People are still going to lie and hate. Uh, Thieves will break in. Students will cheat on tests. Racists will hate. Wars will break out throughout the world. And scammers will steal from the Internet. In other words, the problem of the human heart is unsolved. Evil will still be there. It's true, the world needs better leadership. But we need a type of leader that no human being can do. And that's what the Messianic king is. God promised to King David that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever in righteousness. When Jesus was born, you remember the wise men came and they said, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? That's expressing the hope of fulfillment of this very psalm. Now many first century Jewish people expected the Messiah to be a political ruler over Israel. They wanted him to overthrow the Romans, who at that time were occupying the land that had been given to King David. But the vision for the Messiah is much bigger than that. The Messianic King is unlike any mere human ruler. He rules in perfect righteousness. He eradicates evil from his realm. He reigns with all the power of God because in fact, he is God. He will never be overthrown. His kingdom will never end. And Jesus said, that's who I am. I am the king. He used the language of the kingdom of God often in his parables. And he said, I am the king of all creation, the one who will reign with a leadership far superior to any politician or any ordinary king. Now, verse 1 in this psalm is quoted or paraphrased at least 18 times in the New Testament. After that, I ran out of, you know, I got tired of counting. Uh, And then I found allusions again and again to Jesus on his throne or putting his enemies as a footstool on his feet. Those are phrases taken from this. And even the reference to Jesus as Lord is the number one title for Jesus in the New Testament, and it's taken from this very place. Now, let me read this verse, and I'm going to make a few comments about it. We could spend the whole time on this one verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the thing that strikes me is this first sentence, you know, the Lord says to my Lord, not actually talking to himself, what's going on here? There's two references to Lord. Now I'm going to give you an eye test. I want you to look really carefully at your Bible and see if you can tell the difference between those two words, Lord. Most English Bibles will use a different font for those two words. The first one is probably in all capital letters. And the second one is uh, begins with a capital L, and then it's regular letters after that. And what they're giving you, this is not a secret code. It actually is in the preface to your Bible, but nobody reads the preface. <laughs> it tells you that there are two different Hebrew words translated into English as Lord. And they have very different meanings. So, you'll want to pay attention to when you have the all capitals word. And that one is the name of God. That's the translation of Yahweh, the name of God. So, whenever you see Lord, all in capitals, that is God speaking or God acting. And when you see the other one, it's not all capitals. That one is the Hebrew word Adonai. And that's the second occurrence. And that one means master. Master. It's associated with the idea of God's power and authority and his reign. Now, both words are actually used for God. One is the name of God. The other one is more of a title and a role. So what God is saying here is the Lord God, Yahweh, is making a pronouncement about the Messiah, but he does something that's unusual and unexpected. He calls him Adonai. Calls him master or ruler. And the reason is because he is going to reign as God over the entire creation. So Jesus comes on the scene. Born in a small town. Lived in a village no one wanted to admit they were from. And he says, I am this person. Now... That's quite a claim. But look at what happens when his enemies try to trip him up on their interpretation of Scripture. In Luke 20, 41 to 43, Jesus throws out this riddle. He says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Remember, the prophecy was that the son of David would be the Messiah. So a descendant of David would reign as his king on his throne forever. David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? Okay, so there's, there's an interesting contrast here. On the one hand, God promises the Messiah would be the son of David. On the other, the Messiah would be greater than David, in such that David submits to his authority and calls him, my Lord. Now, if you remember what I said about the Hebrew words for God, Yahweh, the name of God, and Adonai, the, the role of authority, the one who's master, you'll recognize that the word Adonai is used many hundreds of times in the Old Testament for God. And now you're going to start paying attention. You're going to get your magnifying glass and see where those different words are. Um, Verse 5 explicitly says, the Lord is at your right hand. Now that one is Adonai. But who is at the right hand of God? It's the master, Adonai. So you already have in here hints of what becomes known as the doctrine of the Trinity. Even in the Old Testament, you can find once you know in hindsight that there is a trinity, you can say, ah, wait a minute. God is speaking to himself. God is pronouncing about Adonai, and it's like they are acting as one, and you begin to realize it's one God, you know, working in these different ways. So Jesus is throwing this out and saying, he is David's God, he is master, but he's also David's son. So right there, Jesus interprets this of his deity, and he also speaks of the miracle of the incarnation, because he's both a human descendant of David and God himself. All of that just from one verse. And Jesus, of course, after he threw that riddle out, his troublemakers said, okay, we're not going to ask more questions. We don't have to answer questions like that, because it's a puzzle. So the disciples began to understand this and to preach about the deity of Christ, and this is one of the roots of that idea. Jesus, the Messiah, is more than just a mere man, more than just a great ruler. He does things that only God can do. And that's what the Gospels constantly tell you, right? I mean, you're seeing him do things that are way beyond what any ordinary prophet or king could ever do. And the miracle of Christmas is that this great God became incarnate in a little baby that was born in a manger. And so, these people who came saying, we want to see the one who is the great king. I mean, that took tremendous faith to see that, um, that the reign of King, King Jesus one day would be superior to any human king because he himself is God. Now. The first thing that God says to Adonai, the Lord, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so there's some cultural metaphors we have to understand here. First of all, sitting at my right hand. If you were a king in the ancient world, you needed people that were trusted that could carry out your work. And so the one you trusted most, most with your life and with your authority would be right there beside you. And they'd say, sitting at my right hand. So the king is sitting on the throne, sitting next to him is like the prime minister. When that person speaks or acts, he has all the authority of the king. It's as if the king is acting and speaking. And so what this says is that the Messiah will rule with all the authority of God. Um, And the New Testament says that this promise is fulfilled when Jesus rises from the dead and then ascends to heaven. This is part of of the gospel that was preached by the earliest Christians that tends to be glossed over today. Jesus not only died on the cross, he rose from the dead. We've got that part. But the ascension was very important to the early Christians. The reason was that by returning to heaven to sit at God's right hand, and reign over the universe, he was fulfilling the promise of the Messianic king. So they could genuinely preach, as they did to the Jews, the Messiah is alive and he's reigning over the universe right now. So look at what Peter does. This is at Pentecost, and there's echoes here of Jesus' own use of this very verse. And it's a long sermon, I'm just going to cut right to the middle of it. This Jesus, God, raised up. And of that, were all witnesses. So they always preached about the resurrection of Jesus. The Messiah could not be dead if he was going to reign forever, right? So the crucifixion was a whole problem. Nobody anticipated, by the way, the resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's the ascension, and having received from the, pro- the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this upon yourselves, which you're seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God is made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's not very seeker friendly preaching, is it? Just say, You killed the Messiah. But, of course, Messiah had to win, right? So he rose from the dead, and now he's reigning at God's right hands. No wonder 5,000 people repented and believed in him that day because they realized if they've opposed God's Messiah, this is pretty serious. But Peter says, if you repent of your rejection of Messiah and believe in him, all your sins will be forgiven. When Jesus' enemies crucified him, they didn't defeat him. In fact, Ironically, he conquered sin through his death on the cross. And he conquered death through his resurrection. Then he ascended to heaven to reign over the universe with God the Father. And now he's reigning as victorious king. All that in just one verse. And we're not done with this one verse. But look at verse 2. This is kind of interesting. When you think about this, it's tempting to say, well, this is talking about the future and the second coming of Christ. And that is there. But it says he will rule in the midst of his enemies. That's what's happening now. There's still people rebelling against God, right? And Satan is pretty angered about this whole thing and wants to oppose the work of God, but it doesn't matter. Jesus still reigns. He's reigning on his throne. And that's what the apostolic preaching was. Jesus is alive and he's ruling. But the present reign of Christ is not the end of the story. The time will come when he says, I will make all your enemies your footstool. Now, this is talking about the second coming of Christ when every enemy of God is defeated and submitted to him. The kingdom of God will not be complete until every outpost post of rebelling against God is eradicated. And this is what will happen at the second coming of Christ. Now, this is powerful imagery. Um, This is a stone inscription from about 1300 B.C. from Assyria, and this is a king, and it's not really clear, so I'm going to ask for somebody that is a volunteer that works out. You want to admit that you're strong, okay? Somebody strong want to come up here? (laughs) Nobody wants to admit they're strong. All right, somebody that's kind of wimpy come up then. Okay, oh, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) Okay, Morgan. Um, I want you to get down on your knees before me. All the way down. Down more. There you go. How strong do you feel? Not very strong. Now, how about if I had a sword at your neck? I wouldn't move. Yeah. (laughs) That's the defeat of your enemy. That is absolute submission and humiliation. Yes, thank you. Thank for that? And that's what they did. If you wanted to admit that you were defeated, you not only bowed down, but they stood on you. That's absolute defeat. Now, who and what does the Messiah defeat? Well, it starts with the great rebel, Satan, right? Satan was a powerful angel that led a rebellion of angels against God. And Jesus said, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's little forays into Satan's kingdom where individuals are set free from demonic power. But the ultimate defeat of Satan will happen when Christ comes the second time and Satan is completely banished from creation, permanently removed from God's kingdom. And secondly, sin. Now, the dimensions of sin and the defeat of sin are, are multitudes in the New Testament. Matthew one twenty one, just one verse. He will save his people from their sins. I mean... That's such a small thing to say, but so many dimensions to it. What does it mean to save us from our sins? Well, it starts with the penalty of sin. You know, God's wrath is against our sins, and the cross paid the penalty so that we can enjoy the presence of God forever. I mean, that is a great deal. But it's more than that. To be saved from our sins also means to be saved from the power of sin so that you don't commit the same sins over and over again. And Jesus wants to set you free. And through the course of Christian discipleship, God begins to give you power to grow over these sins. But one day, we won't even have that battle anymore. We'll be safe from the presence of sin. We'll be in the presence of God where there's no sin at all. And we ourselves will not feel any inclination to rebel against God. We'll be completely free from the presence of sin in our lives. And there's one more, and just, you know, alliteration is cool. I don't usually do this, but the pervasiveness of sin. What that means is every little pocket of creation that is in rebellion against God, all of that will be cleaned up. It's not just humans, but God, when Christ comes again, is going to remove death from the cycle of nature. You know, we're going to go back to Genesis 1, where it says that the lion ate grass. They don't do that now, I can tell you that. Um, But back then, there was no death. There was no cycle of decay and death, and, and that's a whole other story. But the revelation concludes with this new heaven and new earth in which there's only righteousness and there's only life. There's no more death, no more decay, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more disappointment, no disease, no suffering, no conflict, no abuse. All those little pockets of damage to creation are going to be cleaned up. The pervasiveness of sin will be removed from every pocket of creation. And that's what glory is about. And then death. Paul says the final enemy to defeat it is death. Now Jesus rose from the dead, right? So he conquered death for himself. But for us, Christians even, we still die. Okay? So the resurrection from the dead is the solution to this. We all will rise from the dead when Christ comes as eternal king, and our bodies are going to be transformed, Paul says, into the glory like Jesus' glorious body. So we'll be completely free from the cycle of weakness and pain and decay and death that's part of these bodies now. And that, Paul says, is the defeat of the final enemy, which will happen when Christ returns. So, this king is going to defeat all things that are opposed to God. And our confidence is that the reign of Christ will encompass everything. All pockets of creation will be forced to submit under his feet. Now, verse 5 and 7, pick up this theme again. I'm just going to mention this briefly. But what you see here is a reference to the king... The Messiah judging the world. And it says in verse 6, he'll execute judgment on the nations. And it's a very graphic military image. Again, we're looking at the symbolic image of his defeat of his enemies. Verse 5 says, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You know, powerful people think that they're different. They have special privileges that they, they shouldn't, uh, other people don't get, right? And they probably think, well, I'm gonna get a special place there. No, sorry even the greatest king, is going to be forced to bow on his knees to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that day of judgment, the one who will be pronouncing judgment is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Again, a divine role, something you wouldn't expect, um, people didn't expect the Messiah to do. But of course, you know, in hindsight, you see all the little hints were there. So, when we say in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord, This is saying a lot, isn't it? It's saying that Jesus is Lord in a cosmic sense. He reigns over all things. He's Adonai, the Lord God himself, and one day will defeat all outposts of rebellion against God. But it also is a personal pronouncement. You can't just stop with the intellectual idea. Oh, yeah, Jesus is God. He reigns. What does it mean to you? Jesus is your Lord. You acknowledge that he is the master of your life and that you're going to live in obedience to him. And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's why in this psalm, David says, my Lord, he has acknowledged a personal commitment to the authority of the Messiah that he knew one day would come. So this psalm really gives you two choices. You can either continue to rebel against the king and the king is eventually going to defeat all of his enemies, right? You might get away with rebellion for a while, but he's going to clean up his kingdom and make sure the only righteousness is there. So it's not a good plan to rebel. Um, But, you know, he he does give us that choice. And and the the psalm says, you know, he'll rule in the midst of his enemies. So even though they're rebels, he will uh, maintain order and control. But the other choice is verse 3, It says, your people will offer themselves willingly on the day of your power in holy garments. That means you can freely choose to say, he is amazing. Look at how wonderful Christ is. I want to follow him. I want to submit to him as my Lord. And I want to live in a way that pleases him because he's the king of righteousness. I want to live a holy life. I want to wear clean garments, holy garments. Uh, That's a symbol of righteousness. And and so that voluntary choice to live in obedience to the king and to live a life that pleases him is the life of Christian discipleship. And in this life, we have that choice of going one way or the other. In the end, though, uh, when Christ reigns as king, he will banish from the kingdom anyone that chooses not to submit to him. So, that was a long bit, but the psalm is mostly about the king. Now, the interesting thing to me is right in the middle of this description of the power of the king, there is this totally bizarre statement. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I can't even say that, Melchizedek, say it, it's a lot of fun, Melchizedek. You know, you learned a new word today. That word only occurs in this verse and in one other verse in the Old Testament. And then it's picked up in Hebrews 7 as well, uh, just to try to interpret it, because no one knows what it means. Now, the idea of priest here just doesn't relate to us. We don't think we need priests. I mean, we usually think of wrong ideas when we think about priests. But go back to the time of the Old Testament. What was a priest supposed to do? A priest was a mediator. A priest offered a sacrifice so that you could come in relationship with God and experience God's blessing. And so that's the idea of a priest, but this passage takes it to a whole higher level because David goes back before the law, before the priesthood of Aaron, he goes back to Abraham, to Abraham offering a sacrifice to an obscure king who was also a priest over a little place called Salem, which later became known as Jerusalem. Okay, so you start to see some connections here. Who was this guy? It's just a story that flips in and out and Abraham offered the sacrifice, Why? why? Because he had rescued his family and his possessions from raiding armies. And he was thankful to God that God enabled him to get his stuff back and his family back, his wife. And so he offered this thanks. Well, who is this guy that Abraham, the patriarch, the one whose descendant would be the Messiah that would bless all the nations, that was the patriarch of the Jewish people, this great person bows down to this obscure priest king. Why is he so important? Well, you can see that all, you know, people wonder. So the book of Hebrews helps us to understand how that worked. And I don't have time to go through all of these passages. Hebrews spends like a whole chapter discussing Melchizedek, about a chapter and a half, actually. And he says, this guy's a really good model for the Messiah. It's sort of a pattern that's imitated. It, it's a teaching lesson, basically. Now. Under the Old Testament priesthood, priests had a lot of job security, right? Because you could count on every day people coming and saying, yeah, I did something I shouldn't do, and this animal has to die. Okay, so the animal substituted for the individual um, so they could, could uh, uh, come back into God's blessing. And so if you lied, if you stole something, if you coveted, you know, whatever you did, a sacrifice had to be made. That's job security, I'd say. Um, But the priesthood of Jesus, the Messiah, is way better. Why is it better? Because one sacrifice, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was done. A single sacrifice took away all of your sins and all the sins of all humanity. Anyone who would accept that sacrifice in faith experienced that blessing. So that's a great sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews um, talks about this in several places. First, it says that the pattern is this guy, Melchizedek is a priest and a king. He kind of fulfills both roles. So he is like Jesus in that sense. And also, Abraham recognizes superiority. So you get the same theme you had in verse 1, just like David says, well, he's my Adonai. He's my superior. Um, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. So you get that same kind of superiority pattern. And the other thing the book of Hebrews notes is this Melchizedek just appears on the scene and disappears. No one knows where he came from. No one knows what happened to him. That makes a really good analogy. An analogy for someone who will live forever. And so he says in the same way as this guy just kind of came and disappeared, what happened Jesus, he's there forever. He did his sacrifice one time and then uh, reigns forever. So that's kind of a quick summary of what Hebrews does with this story. And this verse, isn't that interesting? One reference to something so obscure in the Old Testament and David assumed, oh yeah, of course, I remember that story. People were really familiar with the Bible in those days that you could just mention, oh yeah, Melchizedek, and then it brings all this interesting imagery that is so powerful for people. So look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll just read you one little bit about this. Chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those are being sanctified. So one sacrifice, not many, And notice the Old Testament sacrifices didn't actually take away sins, but Jesus' sacrifice does. Jesus' sacrifice is is the real thing. And it's complete. The work is done, so now he can sit down at the right hand of God. And it doesn't say it in this verse, but another place Hebrews says, as our high priest, because he is eternal, he intercedes for us. That's really good news. You're struggling with sin. Jesus is on your side. He wants to see you free from that. And he is actually petitioning God the Father that you would be given the resources to overcome that sin. You're struggling in your life with hardship and you're saying, God, I don't know how to cope with this. Jesus is interceding for you. That is a priestly role. And because he's a priest forever, he will never give up on you. He will continue to stand by your side, to support you, to intercede from you. Our helper, as we saw uh, in one of the scriptures we read today, the one who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. You know, this is a great high priest, one who is really on our side. So, notice the connection with verse 4 with the priest and the king. This is critical. In order for the Messiah, to reign as king forever, he had to deal with the great enemy that prevented God's righteousness reigning in the universe, and that was sin. So he had to be a priest that would take away our sin so he could sit down at the right hand of God and reign. The cross was necessary before the resurrection and ascension. And that's why Jesus came to take away our sins. He came to be our priest to take away our sins so that he could reign forever over a universe of righteousness, and we'd have the privilege of being a part of that. Now, do you start to see why you really need this kind of priest? You can't do this yourself. You're not gonna get rid of your own sins. You're not gonna come up with something that's big enough to compensate for the wrong you've done. There's no one else that's sufficient to do this. And the Old Testament just shows us that story of how People repeatedly fail. And as Hebrews says, all the daily sacrifices just reminded us. They were a day-to-day reminder that we needed someone to take away our sins. And that's what Jesus does. He's a priest forever and will uh, eliminate the problem completely. So here's a big image of Jesus, right? And this is just one psalm. We're going to have four more. I'm not going to do all 300, but you see the picture of this majestic figure who was born in this little manger to be the king of the world. And as Joseph was told by the angel, you will name him Jesus because he will take away the sins of his people. So there's the priest role and the king role all rolled up in that little baby. It's a magnificent imagery to explain what the Messiah was going to do. In the first coming, he would be the priest to take away our sin, and in the second coming, he will reign forever over all creation. And so, there's only really two ways you can deal with this. You can say, well, you know what, I'm doing fine on my own, thank you very much. That's fine. You know, he gives you that choice. It's not going to defeat him. He'll still reign. But one day, Every one of us is going to stand before God and give an account for our life. And you know what scripture says? You're going to be standing before Jesus. That's going to be a shock for a lot of people. But look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Okay, so there we have the submission. Bowing down before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. See, there's two types of submission you can do. You can voluntarily say, I acknowledge you Lord. I acknowledge you're the priest, the one who died for my sins. And you willingly follow him now and you'll enjoy the presence of God forever. Or you'll be forced on your knees with his foot on your neck and you will be forced to acknowledge who he really is. And everyone's going to recognize who he is one day, but by that day, it's too late. So now you have a choice, and that's the choice that this great priest king offers us. Blessings forever, but you have to choose that he is your king and your priest, the one who died for his sins. It would be a great thing this Christmas if you'd make that decision that he would be your priest and your king. And that is my prayer that you'll do that. Let's just have a moment of silence and reflection on this.